uh, 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So far from Deuteronomy, let's turn now to the New Testament, or excuse me, to the prophets, to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter eleven, Ezekiel eleven. We'll read verses fourteen through twenty-one. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, to us this land is given for a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for, these, as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. So far from Ezekiel, and now we'll turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, and there we'll read verses 1 through 21. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, 
Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on true repentance or conversion of man, it is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me begin with a question. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I trust that most of you would pretty quickly say, yes, yes I am. Then let me also ask, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know? Well, perhaps some of us might think, well, you know, I'm a member of a Christian church or I was baptized at one point in my life in a Christian church. That's, that's how I know. Uh, some might say, uh, others might say, 
I gave my life to Jesus at a certain point in my life. That's how I know. But we all know, of course, that it's entirely possible to be a member of the church, or one baptized, or one who at one point in his life gave his life, so to speak, to Jesus, without truly being a Christian inwardly. So again, are you a Christian? And how do you know? Well, this afternoon, that's the question that's presented to us in the Catechism, uh, where we're thinking about what does it mean to be truly repentant or truly converted to Christ? What what does that conversion look like? Uh, And what bearing does that have on our understanding of what it means to be a Christian? How we define what a Christian is. Well, we want to begin this afternoon by thinking about what the Lord Jesus taught us in John 3 that we just read earlier. This conversation that took place between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Here in, in this conversation, the Lord Jesus clearly lays out to Nicodemus the necessity of what the Lord Jesus calls the, the new birth. A man must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. So, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is, is a member of this group that is known as the Pharisees. Now, we should not automatically assume that that makes Nicodemus one of the bad guys. Uh, it's true that in the Gospels, uh, the Gospels often record confrontations between the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, but that doesn't mean they were all the same. Uh, the Pharisees were simply those Jews who believed the truth of the Word of God, who uh, were devoted to the law of God, and who believed that the Messiah was going to come when Israel started obeying the law. Now, there, there were many problems with the, the theology of the Pharisees, not least of all the fact that, that their understanding of the law uh, had been completely overtaken by their own human traditions. They were obsessed with, with washings and ceremonies and things that had very little to do with the, uh, the actual law of God. Uh, an even greater problem, uh, too, with the Pharisees, uh, which comes out in this, this conversation with Nicodemus, is that it seems that for all their study of the Scriptures, they ultimately seem to have missed the great message of the Scripture, which is that the kingdom of God cannot possibly come by human strength and human law-keeping. Perhaps you remember how how we saw this theme as we studied the books of the kings. uh, How even the best of the kings, men like David, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, the best you could hope for among the kings could not deliver the kingdom of God. Uh, It will not come by human strength. Yet the Pharisees seem to persist in their belief that it could. If we would just keep the law, then we would have the kingdom of God. Uh, Along with this, too, uh, they believed that the kingdom of God ultimately involved the liberation of Israel, not from sin, but from the Romans. This is another big uh, problem with with their theology. And so you might say, summing up, the Pharisees, they did well in being devoted to the law of God, but they missed the forest for the trees. You could get them to do an amazing uh, Hebrew word study. You could get them to tell, uh, tell you what, what every rabbi for the last three centuries might have said about a given verse of Scripture, uh, and yet they were not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. 
They were not broken by their awareness of their own sin and their own pride. They were not waiting for the salvation of the nations that God had promised through the prophets would come. Instead, they were full of themselves, trusting in themselves, believing that if there was a problem, it was always somewhere out there and not in themselves. So then this man, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, comes to the Lord Jesus and he comes at night. Now, clearly there was something about Jesus that attracted uh, this man to Jesus. Now, there, there must have been something in Jesus where, where he thought, uh, seeing this, he thought, yes, yes, this is what the law of God teaches. Uh, th- this man is teaching things consistent with the word of God. And yet at the same time, he comes at night. He comes afraid for his own reputation. He doesn't want to be seen with the Lord Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees, uh, as a whole, had already decided this man, Jesus, is a problem. Uh, He's he's a threat to us, and we need to get rid of him. Already then, uh, this early, uh, the Pharisees were already casting out of their synagogues any followers of Jesus. So then Nicodemus comes to him, afraid, at night, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, Jesus' response to Nicodemus, it might seem like it it just comes totally out of the blue. Uh, But in fact, what I want you to see is is Jesus' answer gets straight to the point. Jesus says to him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, where's that that coming from? Uh, what, What is that all about? Why would Jesus say this? to this Pharisee, Nicodemus. Well, Jesus says this because this is exactly what the Pharisees failed to see. Even for all of their study of the Scriptures, they believed that all that needed to happen for the kingdom of God to come was for Israel to try harder, to get their act together. Uh, And and the Pharisees even made it as easy as possible. If If you just follow our rituals, you follow our ceremonies, Uh, We'll get this thing figured out and the kingdom of God will come. That was what the whole program was about. Do our system. Follow our rules. And and bingo, you're within the the bounds of God's law and the kingdom of God will come. It it really was very much a a seven, seven easy steps to the kingdom of God approach that the Pharisees had laid out. Now, Jesus critiques that because he says, you guys are missing the weightier matters of the law in exchange for your traditions. But this is why the Lord Jesus responds the way he does. You guys think that you can just work your way to the kingdom of God by your rituals. But I say to you, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is essentially, who are you guys kidding? If you just read the Old Testament Scriptures and you don't pick up on the fact that, that the law of God is something deeper and, and weightier than your little traditions, uh, including a change of heart, a, a love for God, a love for your neighbor, if somehow you're not picking that up, then, then you're completely missing the point. You're not going to solve the problem of sin by reducing the law to something manageable, something that we can keep. Because the law deals first and foremost with the heart. 
And the moment you're actually dealing with the heart, you realize how utterly impossible it is for human effort, human strength, to bring about the kingdom of God. Uh, So Jesus' point is, if this isn't something that God does, you don't have a chance. It's hopeless. Um, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, What Jesus is teaching here then is unless a person is changed from within by the power of God, made into a new person, they cannot see or be part of this kingdom of God. Now that that phrase that Jesus uses, born again, uh, is is, uh, uh, not very common in in Scripture. Even in the New Testament, uh, it's not a very common phrase. Uh, But if you look for the the phrase, born of God, or born from God, uh, you find that phrase all over the place. And that's, that's really what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, unless a pers- person is made new, uh, unless a person is born of God, they will not see the kingdom of God. Now, something we want to see then is that what Jesus is teaching here is not a new idea. It's not something Jesus made up just now on the spot. Uh, so when, when Nicodemus was, was just totally bewildered at what Jesus was teaching, Jesus does not say, it's okay, Nicodemus, I get it, this is new to you, but I'll explain it all. Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't get this? You've read the scriptures, and you don't see this? How is it possible that you don't understand this? Uh, This idea of needing to be born again, or born from God, is not something new. Uh, We read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 10. uh, And there, in Deuteronomy 10, you you can see the absolute necessity of a heartfelt love and reverence for God. I look at Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all His ways. Love Him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And keep the commandments which I'm commanding you today for your good. The reality is you you can't manufacture that kind of love for God. No set of rules or traditions by themselves can produce that heart that loves and fears the Lord. Uh, And here too, uh, we, we see a call for the very thing. Here in Deuteronomy 10, we see a call for the very thing that Jesus is telling Nicodemus. A call to be born again. Uh, It uses different language, but it's unmistakably the same thing. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, uh, the Lord said through Moses, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. It's a change of heart that is needed. Now, an explanation uh, for this language of circumcision, it might, might be helpful here. Uh, in, in the ancient world, uh, circumcision was, was generally practiced. It wasn't just the Israelites that did it. There were other nations that, that practiced circumcision as well. Uh, and it was generally more widely believed uh, that the foreskin uh, was an obstacle to the passage of, of semen. Uh, and that's, that's why the foreskin was, was removed. Now, you don't find that theology in Scripture. That's not why Scripture teaches circumcision. It was a symbolic act. And yet something of that original sense is still there. It carries this meaning of the removal of an obstacle. 
circumcision very much carries that, that meaning. This is why uh, when God commanded Moses to speak to the, the Egyptians, uh, to speak to Pharaoh, Moses complains back to God. He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, uh, which is a way of saying the words just don't come out. Uh, there's an obstacle there blocking the words from, from getting out. Uh, so, so circumcision then, it, it was a symbolic act uh, depicting the removal of an obstacle. But what was the obstacle that, that biblical circumcision was pointing to? It's the sinful flesh. It's the old man. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless the old man is removed and the person is made into a new man. Uh, And this becomes explicit in case the Israelites had missed the point. It becomes explicit in this text in Deuteronomy 10. Uh, God says to the people of Israel, Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Uh, The true meaning of circumcision was a matter of the heart. Uh, You can't love God. That kind of love for God doesn't come out of your heart until that obstacle, the old flesh, is removed. You need to get rid of that before you can serve God. Uh, uh, the, the obstacle here is, is the pride and stubbornness of heart that keeps man from obeying God. So he says, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Well, it's really the very same thing that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, to serve God to love God, uh, to, to keep His commandments and thereby be part of His kingdom, the old man needs to die. That, that old flesh needs to be put off. Uh, the old nature must be removed. And a new man must then come to life. This is why the Lord Jesus looks at Nicodemus uh, as Nicodemus is all bewildered at this teaching. And the Lord Jesus looks at him and says, how is it possible Uh, That you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. That you don't see the necessity of this new birth. Uh, And this text in Deuteronomy, it's far from an isolated text. Uh, The same expression, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts, uh, it occurs again in Deuteronomy chapter 30. uh, And it occurs several times in, in the prophecy of Jeremiah. So it's not something the Pharisees hadn't seen or hadn't noticed. Uh, The same idea, in fact, is something you find throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. No amount of law-keeping is going to change the human heart. Nothing short of a change of heart that comes from God will make the person into a new man capable of obedience. And you see this so clearly, too, in the prophecy of Uh, of Ezekiel. Uh, There God uh, cries out to the people of Judah uh, for their rebellion and and their their unbelief uh, for which the kingdom of God was about to crumble. The land was being invaded uh, and the city of Jerusalem destroyed. Uh, But there the prophet Ezekiel looks forward, looks past the the exile and past the destruction of of the city uh, to the coming of, of this new kingdom Uh, which Ezekiel recognizes must begin with the change of human hearts. Uh, And and here too, Ezekiel sees this as a sovereign act of God. So look at uh, Ezekiel 11, verse 17. 
Uh, He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I, this is God speaking, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I their God. Now this is exactly what the Lord Jesus is also speaking about. And this is why he's so disappointed uh, to see men like Nicodemus, teachers of Israel, who don't get this basic truth that, that you must be born again, born from God. So here's what this means for us. True conversion, a change of heart that's wrought about by God himself, is absolutely, utterly necessary for a person to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, By the way, just so we make sure we know what we're talking about, when we speak of the kingdom of God, uh, we are talking here about the rule and reign of God in this earth, where where, uh, people are brought into obedience to God, and and a new uh, creation uh, comes about, a new society, a new order. Uh, And uh, for a person to, to see that kingdom and to be a part of that kingdom. This is what the Pharisees were hoping for. Uh, a man must be born again. Uh, church membership, uh, being a member of the church or having once been baptized uh, in the church or having given your life to Jesus at some point in your life uh, in the church uh, is not sufficient by itself any more than being a descendant of Abraham was sufficient uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, he must, a man must be born again, must be given a new heart by God. And it's something that God alone can do. Uh, it's what Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's a sovereign act of God. The kingdom of God that we too are hoping for. It's what we pray for. It's part of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God cannot be manufactured or obtained by by seven simple steps, nor by a thousand human laws or traditions. It can only come where God in His sovereignty reaches down with His Spirit and makes hearts new, changes attitudes, changes beliefs, uh, changes our very hearts. Uh, That's something uh, that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New. In the Old Testament, uh, God did this, but among very few. You see, very few changed, regenerate hearts. Now, in the New Testament, after Pentecost, uh, this is something that God is doing now among the many and across the world, bringing about a new creation. Uh, That is necessary, and that's something that we cannot lose focus from. And and for us, we're we're part of a Reformed church. We we value the covenant. We, We value covenant membership, and we do well to do that. But we cannot lose sight of this fact uh, that, that for the kingdom of God to come and to exist in our midst, we, we cannot lose sight of the need for new hearts, changed hearts, uh, an act, a sovereign act of God making us into new people. Church membership or covenant membership by itself is not enough to bring that kingdom about. 
Now, having said that, it is very important that we spend a few minutes thinking here also about the timing of, of this conversion. Uh, those of us who've experienced this very powerfully, uh, who, who've experienced the work of God in our hearts, changing us into new people in a very short and, and sometimes dramatic uh, moment of time, uh, we run into a particular temptation, which is to think that the only true evidence of this conversion is a sort of Damascus Road experience uh, in which in a single moment God grabs the person and brings you from darkness to light, from, from sin and rebellion to, to, to brokenness and humility. We want to see something dramatic. Uh, and it's true that God does indeed uh, do such things in the lives of some. He continues to do this today. Uh, the, the whole reason we speak of a Damascus Road experience is because this is what God did with the Apostle Paul, taking him from this proud, stubborn Pharisee uh, and, and breaking him down, making him into a new man uh, in, in a single moment. Uh, that, that's a dramatic conversion, and, and it's certainly not the only instance in the New Testament. You think of men like Zacchaeus, for example, the, the rich, corrupt tax collector who in a single moment uh, is, is changed by God into a new man. Uh, you think of the, the Philippian jailer who saw Paul and Silas singing praises and hymns in, in prison uh, and in a moment is brought to his knees, is changed and made into a new person. Now, these are dramatic conversions by which God reminds us of his absolute sovereignty. He can take the least likely, uh, the most uh, proud, stubborn heart, and, and make them into a new person. But we should not think, therefore, that every true conversion has to look like that. Uh, in fact, more often than not, those are the minority of true conversions. Uh, scripture is replete with examples uh, of those saints who from childhood, uh, indeed from birth, have known and loved God as their God and Father. You might think of Timothy, for example, who, who Paul says from childhood was acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, uh, who had the same faith that was present in his mother Eunice uh, and his grandmother Lois. You might think of David, uh, who in Psalm 22 says, You are he who took me from the womb, uh, who made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. Or, or again in Psalm 71, uh, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Uh, this, is, this is what you see more often than not in Scripture, uh, is God working regeneration through the means of the covenant. Uh, that this is, in fact, God's intended design for the covenant, uh, that his people would, would be from birth, uh, have the privilege of knowing him as their father, enjoying relationship with him as his children, uh, and, and as they grow up, uh, having the privilege of being able to do so while knowing him uh, as, as their father. This is why parents are instructed with this very task, to raise your children in the fear of the Lord, not just to the fear of the Lord, but in the fear and instruction of the Lord. 
so, so we have to guard ourselves against the temptation uh, of assuming that, that real conversions can only fit one kind of mold. Uh, we judge a true conversion by its fruits. That's true love for God, true love for one's neighbor. Uh, we judge it by its fruits, not by its circumstances or it, its manner of arrival. Do not forget what the Lord Jesus says. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't hear its sound. You don't know where it's going, uh, but you know it's there. Uh, the wind might blow a piece of tumbleweed a uh, hundred miles uh, in a single storm, or it might blow that same piece of tumbleweed uh, the same distance over the course of many days or, or, or weeks or months. Uh, and that brings us to, to our final point then. What we're looking for to judge true conversion, we're looking for the fruit of conversion. Uh, uh, which is, is the means by which we, we can judge its sincerity. What does true conversion and repentance look like? Well, the Catechism gives us a very short uh, and beautiful description of that. Uh, it is, on the one side, a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Uh, it's to grieve, not just outwardly, but from the heart. To grieve that we've offended God by our sin. And, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. And you think here are the words of, of David in Psalm 51, uh, verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's, that's genuine, heartfelt sorrow for sin. And you might think again of, of God's words in, in Deuteronomy 10. Be no longer stubborn. So true conversion is a turning, uh, a turning away from the stubbornness and pride of our own heart, uh, from rebellion to surrender and submission to God. Uh, it's the recognition that uh, the things that I was holding to, clinging to in my sin are unholy and offensive in the eyes of God. Uh, they are deserving of His judgment. Uh, and, and it's a relinquishing of those things, letting go of those things uh, to surrender to the just judgment of God. You think of the command as well of, of God in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, uh, where God says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That's why the Catechism emphasizes true repentance uh, includes a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's easy enough to, to, to look sad, to show sorrow for sin, uh, but true repentance comes from the heart. Uh, I grieve that I've offended God with my sin. Now that kind of sorrow uh, is the work of God, uh, but you can recognize it when you see it. Uh, it, is, it is to no more defend my sin or excuse my sin, or minimize my sin, but to confess it and to be truly broken before God, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, says, says Psalm 51, is what God desires. And only God can bring that about. Uh, on the other side of, of true repentance, it's also a heartfelt joy. There's, there's a joy, even in the midst of sorrow, a joy uh, in God through Christ uh, that comes from trusting in the work of Christ and the gospel. See, sorrow alone is not true repentance. Judas, who betrayed Christ, was sorry. 
He was sad, and he went in despair and hung himself. But, but true repentance uh, is that heartfelt uh, sorrow for sin, but then also that, that fleeing to God, saying, I trust that these, even this sin can be forgiven by the blood of Christ, and there's a deep joy uh, in knowing that I am forgiven. Uh, the joy of being comforted by the gospel. Uh, those who have been truly chastened by God uh, and brought to repentance, they also find uh, a deep and unspeakable joy in, in the gospel, uh, in the knowledge and trust that God has fully and completely paid for this sin too. Uh, so true, true repentance and conversion uh, is marked by both profound sorrow because of sin and also deep comfort and joy because of Christ. Uh, and, and that kind of repentance then, what begins in the heart, also works itself out in the life. Uh, this is what we mean when we speak of the fruit of repentance. It leads to lasting change. Now, when John the Baptist was preaching to the crowds in the wilderness, baptizing them at the Jordan, uh, preparing the way for Christ, he called out to the crowds uh, not only to repent, but then he also adds, and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, true repentance leads to lasting change. Uh, where there is uh, true sorrow, heartfelt sorrow for sin, hatred for sin, there's also going to be a, a heartfelt desire to begin living a new life, uh, to fight sin, to flee from sin, to humble myself daily before the Lord that I might be changed. Uh, where, there's, where there's comfort and joy in Christ, that's going to be accompanied by, if it's heartfelt, a love for God, a love for His righteousness, and a desire to have my life reshaped, rebuilt by the will of God. Now, Scripture uh, describes the, the practical ramifications of this in, in a thousand different places and ways. You can't, uh, we could be here all day if we were going to list all of the visible changes that repentance brings. But something that, that holds them all together, that we should recognize in all of them, is that true repentance, the fruit of repentance, begins in worship. It begins in worship of God, uh, adoring the majesty and righteousness of God, desiring to be remade in His image. Uh, you actually see this very clearly in the text we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, so going back to that, in verse 16, there's that call to circumcise the foreskin of your heart, be no longer stubborn. And then listen to what, how verse 17 carries on. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So it's painting a picture of the character of God. This is who your father, your God is. And then the next verse, Therefore, love the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see what's going on? It's, this is your God who delivered you. This is what he's like. Therefore, be like him. Uh, the, the changed heart wants to be like his God. Uh, understand then what happens in, in repentance as we gaze on, on the beauty and the majesty of God. It becomes our wholehearted desire to be reshaped in his image. So uh, we're asking, what does God love? 
then I want to love that too. Uh, That will be my passion, my desire. Uh, If it is the nature of God to execute justice for the fatherless and the widow to love the sojourner, then I'm going to be someone who, who does justice, who loves the helpless, who cares for the sojourner. It's saying, the way that I walked in before was empty, it was evil, it had no fruit but death. Uh, And now, as I see my God, uh, the God who saved me, uh, I want to learn what it means to start walking in His ways, uh, because I see now His ways are higher, far, far higher than mine. Uh, And Scripture then records just a thousand different outworkings of, of this repentance, Uh, Ephesians 4.25, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? Because God is the God of truth. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Why? Because God is generous. God works for our good. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Why? Because that's the nature and the character of your God. He speaks truth. He speaks words that give life. He gives grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I, uh, this, this is what the fruit of, of conversion looks like. It's, I've been saved by good and gracious God. I want to be like my Father. Uh, and as you can see then, when you think about all those different examples, true repentance and conversion is not just a one-time event that happens in the Christian's life. It's true there is a one-time beginning uh, where the heart is changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Uh, but but it's a, there's also an ongoing process. It is the whole of the Christian life. Turning from sin, turning to God, learning to walk in His ways. Uh, you, you all, if, uh, if you've been raised in the Reformed Church, you're familiar with the, the story of Martin Luther on October 31, how he nailed the 95 Theses to the, the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Uh, and, and the first of these theses, the first point uh, that he put on that paper, uh, was aimed at the, the Roman Catholic system of penance, which uh, held that uh, True repentance is carrying out certain acts of penance in response to a given sin. Uh, And and his first thesis uh, is stated as follows, uh, where he says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed that the entire life of believers be a life of repentance. That's really what repentance is. It's not just a one-time event. It's not just a season in your life. It's a lifelong uh, process. As we live in this world and we're called, given the name uh, of children of God, uh, we are called to show the world what the character of our Father looks like. Uh, We're called to turn from sin and to turn to God. 
Uh, it is not as some think of repentance, a, a life of, uh, of, of misery and self-affliction. You sort of get this picture of uh, medieval uh, Christians uh, whipping themselves uh, to show their, their penance and sorrow for sin. Uh, but it's not, it's not that life at all. It's a life of rejoicing. Yes, we grieve at sin because we, we, we know as the Spirit works in us how sin grieves our God. Uh, and yet, the, the same Spirit teaches us how to live in joy uh, as we walk in the joy of, of the gospel, as we uh, approach day by day closer to the, per, to, to the goal of perfect holiness, reflecting our perfect Father. And that, that, is, that is a thing that is worth repenting for and rejoicing in. Amen. Let's respond.